Thank you for downloading our podcast or watching our sermon series. Reformed churches are sometimes accused of being rather stoic in their worship. Some might accuse Reformed Church as being one that quenches the Holy Spirit. Is this claim really fair? Do Reformed people really desire to quench the Holy Spirit? Why do Reformed people have such a high view of the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments? Does the Lord really work through such means? Please join us and be edified as we consider the Lord building His church through the means of grace in our series titled, Why Such Means? Well, last time we considered the authority of the canon or the significance of the canon of Scripture. And canon, again, just simply means rule, authority. Uh, it's not something that goes boom. It's something that testifies to being authoritative. That's when we say canon with one end, that's what it means. So we go on now and we consider the nature of what does it mean that the canon is complete? Because remember last time we said that we don't believe the Word of God is the Word of God because the church declares it the Word of God, but we see it as the Word of God because we discern it. Uh, its words come true, that, it, that the Spirit testifies within us that it is true. So now we, we move on to the issue of what, what do we do with tongues? Uh, if you ever interacted with a Pentecostal, this is something they speak of as the second blessing of the Holy Spirit. So if you're a very spiritual person, uh, you've spoken in tongues. And so obviously when charismatics ask us, you know, why is our worship uh, so orderly in, in the way that it follows and it's structured and it seems so high church in comparison to what they're used to? Uh, my snarky comment sometimes is I'm Dutch and I don't believe the Spirit moves that way. But that's not an answer that truly comes from the Word of God. That's only when I'm feeling in a particular snarky mood and I know my audience well. And so the, the reality is then, why is it that the Lord at one time has used this issue of tongues and now we don't expect tongues? I mean, is it just a cultural thing that when we come together, is it just that we're Dutch or European and, and we don't want to show this level of emotion? Or, or is there a really valid reason for this? And so that's what we're going to be looking at this evening. So first, we're going to ask, what are tongues? So when we read of this in Scripture, I think it's very important that we define what tongues mean. Because sometimes we can throw these terms around and we kind of talk past each other rather than really understanding the intention of these words. Secondly, why were tongues used? What's the purpose of it? Well, why does God allow for it? Because clearly, when we read in Corinth, tongues were used in the context of the church. That's what Paul's dealing with in 1 Corinthians 14. We, we can't get away from the evidence that's here. It, it's clear. Scripture tells us that tongues were used. So, so why were tongues used? And lastly then, why do we say that the gift of tongues have gone away? Uh, what, why do we, we make this claim other than just saying we're uh, culturally inept at showing emotion or something, as some may accuse? Uh, what, what does it really mean? Why have these tongues gone away? And so let's begin with the issue of tongues. I think one of the things we have to see when we look at 1 Corinthians 14 and 13, and basically from 12 through 14, where Paul's dealing with the body of Christ and building one another up, the issue of tongues is something where the Lord is bringing revelation to the community. 
So when, when we look at tongues and say, what, what are they? Well, it's revelation that God gives to the community. That, that's the first thing we have to affirm with this. Now, in terms of, of what the canons, or canons, the Belgic Confession is teaching us about the canon of Scripture, what the Belgic wants us to know is that really the canon of Scripture is sufficient. Uh, we don't need anything else, right? Uh, as we already covered, we receive these words. Uh, so we don't need to add to these words. And so that the Word of God already has authority. But notice how the confession summarizes significance of the canon of Scripture. Then it says, Therefore we must not consider human writings, no matter how holy their authors may have been, equal to divine writings. So right there, it's not saying that, that we don't read any theologians or we don't read uh, historians or theological historians who have laid out the history of the church. We, we read that. But we have to put it against the Word of God and discern its truth. Not every theologian nails it every time, uh, and so we have to continually discern what they're teaching according to the canon, That's what it's, or according to the Scriptures. So the Belgian Confession is not saying, well, just be ignorant, don't read anything, just don't study history. It's not saying that. We study history, we learn from historians, but we want to discern what they're teaching us according to the Word of God. Going on then, so it's not seeing these authors as being equal. We shouldn't see them equal to divine writings. But we also have to be careful when we put custom, majority, nor age, nor the passage of time, nor persons, nor councils, decrees, or official decisions above the truth of God. For truth is above everything else. So this, again, is not saying that we stop having synods or we stop having uh, meetings in, in terms of the church to talk about things, but we have to put them according to the Word of God. This is why our church order has appeals, that we're understanding that not every decision that's made is infallible, right? So as we talked about last time with the Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholics, this is one of the many things that distinguish us from them. They believe that because of the ancient history that they have laid out, they say, well, because our church goes back to the apostolic era, uh, we are those who are in the right. And again, it, it's important to, to understand just because somebody makes a claim doesn't mean it's true. I mean, for instance, I can tell you, if you give me a million dollars, I can take you to the moon. I'm going to tell you right now, honestly, there's a higher probability that when I have five or six people pay me to take them to the moon, there's a higher chance I'm skipping town than you're going to the moon, right? So I can make the claim. But the issue is, can I deliver the claim? So when Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox make this claim that we have the tradition that goes back to the apostles, you can't just take that at face value. And, and the, the Belgian Confession saying, even if that's true, which it's not, but even if it was true, it doesn't make it right. Now we heard this morning from Hosea. They can appeal to 200 years of their particular festival. Doesn't mean the Lord was pleased with it at day one as he is at the 200th year of that particular celebration of that festival. He's still displeased with it. So it doesn't matter it's gone on for 200 years. In fact, the Lord's probably more displeased at year 200 than he was at year one uh, because they should have known better. But anyway, we, we get the point that just because there's a passage of time doesn't make something right. We have to compare it to the word of God. Uh, we have to discern the truth 
from what we know is coming to us from God. So now when uh, we understand this and we consider this reality, and we look at 1 Corinthians 14, and we look at this and, and, and we hear of the Apostle Paul speaking of spiritual gifts, he's speaking of prophecy, he's speaking of tongues. We say, well, what is Paul getting at? Well, where this really starts is in 1 Corinthians 12 towards the end when he talks about the body of Christ, uh, each part of the body having its particular function and duty in the service of the body of Christ. So it's important, 12 through 14, right? The theme that you see consistent is how the body functions in the service of one another. So that's an important detail to stick in the back of your mind, especially if you interact uh, with a charismatic that gets very aggressive about tongue speaking. That it's important. Take them right to 1 Corinthians 12. Where does Paul start this argument? Oh, it's about the body of Christ serving the body of Christ. I'm going to lay out why that's important. And so, what does Paul say at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verse 27, 28, 29, going through this? Well, the Apostle Paul lays out the different uh, giftedness in the church. So there's apostles. You know, we would see them on par with the Old Testament prophets. Uh, so obviously, they're very authoritative, uh, very gifted in the Holy Spirit. Obviously, they bring the inspired, written Word of God. So, so yes, we esteem the apostles very highly. So they're first in priority. Secondly, here in this list, in the context of 1 Corinthians, I do think this is probably speaking of the New Testament prophets. So you would have your apostles uh, who would travel. Prophets would seem to be more local, uh, where there would be individuals within the church that would bring uh, revelation or give predictions or, or something that would go on in the power of the Spirit. Uh, so there's the prophets that he has there, the teachers. So this would be like Paul writing to Timothy, where you're moving from revelation or open canon, where the Lord gives revelation to the church, to now you have the teachers taking that revelation, uh, unpacking it, wrestling with what it means, and then taking those words and bringing it to the, to the congregation, preaching the gospel. Then you have miracles. So you would think that, that miracles would be above teachers, but, but he doesn't prioritize it that way, does he? So the people that perform miracles are actually lower than the teachers. Then you have the gifts of healing, and then you have helping and administration. Now, now we don't know exactly what this is, uh, in terms of the church and, and what, what Paul specifically means, it seems it's probably something with almsgiving, something with uh, benevolence. It, it seems it's something in, in that, sort of in that purview, it's sort of in, in that realm of what Paul might be getting at. But we don't know 100% what, what he means by that. But there's no doubt the church knows. And it's, it's sort of irrelevant to the argument, isn't it? Because Paul's laying out the, the priority of these things. And notice what's last, then tongues. So right here, 1 Corinthians 12, he, he's, he's saying, listen, you guys have it backwards. You, you think that tongues is a testimony of a superior Christian experience. He's saying it's not. It's actually very low on the list and low on the priority. And so that's that's very important now in terms of the service of the church. He's saying this is low in priority. And so as Paul lays this out, where does he go on? Well, he ends in verse 31 
want the higher gifts, desire the greater things. And I'm going to show you a more excellent way. Now, 1 Corinthians 13. What's the higher way? Well, he tells us, 1 Corinthians 13, 8, love never ends, prophecy will pass, um, tongues will cease, but we find that knowledge will pass away, but love endures, right? So the higher way is understanding living out the gospel. These tongues, these prophecies will pass. Now, he's not saying that uh, prophecy no longer has relevance, but what he's saying is this uniqueness in how the Lord operates in the context of the church is not going to be the norm. So when we come together, we, we shouldn't think that we're deficient or we're deviant uh, because we're not experiencing this tongue speaking. Paul tells us right here, 1 Corinthians 13, 8, listen, this is a temporary giftedness to the church for a temporary time serving a temporary purpose. So we say, okay, well then we understand this, this priority. Paul addresses this and says, hey, you know, verse 29, 30 of chapter 12, again, going back to that. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Do all speak in tongues? Uh, do all interpret? And so we, we find right here, Paul saying, listen, it's not that it's, it's a spiritual deficiency in a person's life. It's not the expectation that every single individual is going to bring forth these particular gifts. And so Paul's saying, stop making these gifts and, and this orientation something that, that's higher than what it really is, right? So it's understanding that these gifts are intended to be temporary, something given to the church in a unique time uh, when the canon is not fully formed, meaning the apostles haven't written all their letters. So, so when I say canon's not fully formed, that's what I mean. The apostles are still writing letters. Uh, you still have gospel accounts possibly still going out there, being written, being finalized by the inspiration of the Spirit. And so you don't have the assembly of the writings that we have today. So this is where we say our canons close. With the death of the apostles, we no longer need revelation. So going on then, what do we do with, with, with the tongues? We still haven't really defined it. We, we've said this is intended to be temporary. We've said this is intended to build up the body of Christ, but what are they? Well, if you talk to some charismatics, they will say that this is an angelic language. It's a language that when, when you speak it, you know it, that it's something supernatural, and when it's supernatural, uh, there's something incredible that happens. So let, let's try and explore that from Scripture and see if that's really the intention of what Paul's getting at. So some of the passages they would appeal to, just so you're aware, uh, they would appeal to 1 Corinthians 14, uh, looking at verses 2 and 4. So if you look at our text, verse 2, you have, For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. Verse 4, The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. Right? So this is something where you're speaking to God in a unique language. You're building yourself up in the faith is something that's beneficial. Going on, Paul addresses the Roman church, not the Roman Catholic, but Roman in terms of Romans. And as he writes in Romans 8, he mentions in Romans 8 verse 26 that there's a gifted of the Spirit, an intercession of the Spirit that's too deep for words. And so the implication of what people do with this verse is they say, see, this is an angelic language that's breaking forth within us 
that only angels can understand, and it's a language beyond this age. Uh, so those are, it's a very quick presentation of the argument. Those are probably the most forceful verses they, they would put to you, so just so you're not a deer in the headlights. So how do we answer this? How do we address it? Because it sounds like something that's great, right? I mean, who doesn't want to speak in an angelic language and, and to commune with the counsel of God in, in that level? I mean, this, this sounds wonderful. But is that the intention of what Paul has for us? I mean, that's really the question we always have to go back to. What is the intention that the Apostle Paul has for us? Well, if we look at the, the manifestation of tongues, we go back to Acts, where we find this happening at Pentecost. And at Pentecost, uh, Acts 2, verse 2, you have the tongues of fire that enable the disciples to speak. Now, Acts 2 tells us something very significant about tongues. Because you have people that don't normally speak a particular language, as we find in Acts 2, verse uh, 11 where it says Cretans and Arabians are speaking in their own language. But you have Jewish individuals that don't know this language. So, so what would happen, for instance, if, if we put this in our context, uh, that basically all of a sudden you'd be speaking in a language you, you've never learned how to speak this language before. And as you're speaking this language, you, you don't really know what's going on. But the point is, this is a language going out to the nations. So we might say, well, why is that so significant? Well, think about the Old Testament context, right? We, we can't just say, here's the New Testament, the Old Testament's abstracted, has no meaning. Genesis 11, when you have the earthlings, which is how it's presented, the earthlings come together, they, they conspire to build a tower, they're going to penetrate into heaven, they're going to force God to come down, they're going to lead them around on a leash, and everyone will come and tour their particular city because they are those who are truly the gateway to the gods, which is what Babylon fundamentally means. So here you have Babel setting up its conspiracy to overpower God. And so the, the earth is coming together in this particular place. Well, God leans forward, looks, looks down. Now, of course, we're, we're not saying that God really is, is like this. But what Moses is communicating by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that this great endeavor, this great tower, is so insignificant that God still has to sort of squint to see what's going on. And again, this is using man-like language to describe what God's doing. And, 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 and the purpose is not to minimize God, but to minimize the endeavor of man. Oh, we're building a tower to lead this God around and to force his hand. Well, the Lord's squinting down like, well, what are these people doing, these little ants moving around? And so what is the meaning of that? Well, the Lord goes and he confuses their language. So it's important he doesn't swat the tower, which he could. Uh, there are like little ants. I mean, he could step on the anthill and destroy it if he wanted to. But he confuses their language. Why? So they spread out through the world. When we come to Pentecost and we think about the theology of Luke, what's going on in Luke? Well, the gospel is going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. So we're taking the gospel from the holy city of Jerusalem and we're bringing it to the ends of the earth. So the Gentiles receive this, this gospel in their language. 
So what Pentecost is communicating to us is a rather mundane, maybe we, we could say. It's just simply people preaching the gospel in a language so foreigners can understand the significance of the gospel language or, or the gospel in their own language. So what are tongues? Well, tongues are not an angelic language. Tongues are intended for the gospel to go out to the foreign nations so foreigners are blessed by the general call of the gospel. That's all it is. So when Paul's speaking to the Corinthian church, he's saying, listen, when you bring these tongues or, or when these tongues are exercised, understand their purpose. To bring the gospel to the foreign people, that's why the Lord gives us temporary giftedness. As he says in 1 Corinthians 12, going on to the end, that not everyone speaks in tongues, not everyone prophesies, so don't uh, think of this as a spiritual elitism that's going on. So let me go on then as we've already started to address this. Why is he using tongues? Well, the simple answer is to overturn Babel. As uh, earthlings have spread out through the earth, if you will, now it's time for the gospel message to be broadcast that Christ has accomplished his, his work, and, and it's done. And so what, what do we do then with the tongues in terms of Corinth? Why are they used? Because we, we've started to explore this devotional concept of what's going on, right? We look at verse 2. One speaks in a tongue, not speaking to man, speaking to God. Utters mysteries of the Holy Spirit. I mean, who doesn't want to do that? Going on, continuing on. But prophesying, as he tells us, is what we find in terms of building up the community, as we find in verse 3. So now verse 3, we're adding to this that prophecy does something else, that he's, he's pitting these two things against each other. Now it's not that tongues and prophecies are, are speaking of a different Christ, but he wants the Corinthians to understand this, this tongue speaking is not the end all and be all, that, that it seems as church is saying, oh, we're elite, we speak in tongues. And Paul's saying, well, great. But why does the Lord give you this gift? Well, ultimately, for prophecy, it's for upbuilding. Going on then, verse 5, then Paul says, I want you all to speak in tongues. Right? So the implication is, well, what's going on in this church? Well, there's individuals boasting that they speak in tongues. And Paul says, hey, I, I wish all of you could speak in tongues. But he says, you know what? It's better that you prophesy because when you prophesy, you're speaking in a language that makes sense. And so what, what does one do with these tongues? Well, notice that the tongues, as he tells us in verse 5, very important. One has to interpret. Why does someone have to interpret? Because it would be like all of a sudden I start preaching in Japanese. And you'd probably think I lost my mind or something's going on. I've never studied Japanese, right? But if you have someone who can stand up and interpret it, well, maybe there's someone who's visited the church, say, for in the first century. They're from Japan. They hear the gospel as they've ever heard it before, and the interpreter now brings it to the rest of the congregation. So what verse 5 tells us is that one can choose and discern when to exercise this gift and when not to. And when are they to exercise the gift? For the upbuilding of the congregation, which 1 Corinthians 12 tells us. And so it's that reminder this isn't a sign of one's superiority in terms of their spiritual walk, but one's desire to serve Christ. Going on then, we look at verses 
uh, 4 through 12. And we consider what the Apostle Paul is saying there. The Apostle Paul wants us to understand that as we use these languages, we're using them for the glory of Christ. And he goes and he uh, uses an analogy of the, of the instruments, that if we don't understand the tones of the instrument, what's the point? There's really not much of a reason. But going down then to verse 11, underscoring this again. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the foreigner, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So again, this is Paul driving home the reality. When you use this gift, this isn't for your own selfish spiritual elitism. And it's a pretty harsh thing, right? Paul's saying, stop making this about yourself. Start thinking about how do we use this gift for the upbuilding and glorification of Christ and the upbuilding of the body of Christ. So one needs to discern their audience and one needs to be wise in, in terms of doing this. Notice then, as he goes on in verse uh, 12, as he makes us explicit, we're doing this with the goal, the desire to, up, to build up the church. So going on then, as we look at verses 13 through 19, what is Paul saying there if we want to summarize it? Well, if one is going or has a desire or to, to speak in a tongue, what is their desire that he can also interpret? So in other words, it's not about the person standing up and making a show. It's that the person can actually take what they are saying in a foreign language and bring the significance of it to the congregation. Uh, this is where Paul is saying that somehow in terms of how God is working, that we do become sort of vessels, but we can exercise our will and discernment that if we don't know what the message is, we need to be careful. And that's where Paul is saying, I'd really rather speak with my mind one tangible word versus something that's, that's not very tangible because then I know that I'm truly building up the body of Christ. And here you have the apostle, the one as he recounts in 2 Corinthians 11, called into the presence of God, seeing the highest heavens in the presence of the living God. And so here we, we again have this overview of what we've said about tongues. It's a foreign language. It's something that's done for the body of Christ. It's done bringing the gospel of Christ. And when tongues are used, it was, it was used for the edification of the whole body of Christ rather than for an individual to claim some sort of elitist experience. Going on then, we say, well then, why do we say there are no more tongues? Why, why don't we come to church expecting this to be manifested? Well, as we look at this, Paul goes and he actually cites from the Old Testament. If you look at verse 21, and this isn't a very encouraging text that he cites if you look at the context of this. Uh, he reminds us to be mature in our thinking, in other words, to, to know who we are in Christ. But he says in verse 21, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now when he says a law, he's basically speaking of the instruction of God or the Old Testament canon. This isn't from the first five books of, of the Old Testament, but it's from the prophets. It's from Isaiah. And Isaiah writes to the people of Israel in Isaiah 28, verse 11. 
And what Isaiah is basically doing is the same thing we've heard in, in, in Hosea. And so Isaiah is writing to the people of God saying, listen, the Lord's going to speak through a foreign people. How is he speaking? By carrying them into exile. And he's saying that even in the midst of Israel being carried off into exile in this foreign tongue, they're not going to discern what I'm saying, what, what I'm saying to them and have warned them about. And so it, it's not going to make any sense, but it comes off as judgment. So the Lord has broadcasted judgment, executes his judgment for, through a foreign people, disciplining his people, and they still don't listen or understand it. And so when, when Paul says this, we can say, well, what does Paul mean, right? Because this isn't something that's very encouraging. But in verse 22, he says, well, tongues are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers. Well, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. And so we say, okay, well, well what does that mean? Well, he's saying that if you're speaking in tongues, it's not really edifying for the church because we're speaking in a foreign language, right? So we assume that as we come together in America, we, we all speak and are familiar with English. So if I came here and if I knew a, another language and I was fluent in that language and I wrote a sermon in that language, you, you wouldn't find that very edifying or very encouraging. You, you wouldn't know what I was talking about. And, and, and you would think that's absurd. That's what Paul's getting at. So if in a congregation we're, we're doing this to, to build ourselves up, how are we serving the unbeliever who's maybe visiting the church and, and joining together and, and communing? Now, prophecy, as he says, this is for believers. Well, prophecy is where one is bringing something tangible in the language of the people. And so now the congregation can understand this. Uh, this is something in this unique time that is beneficial. Now, when we think about this reality of what's going on, he, he lays out, verse 23 and 24, the reality of this problem. So an unbeliever comes to the church you have one person speaking in this language, another person speaking in this language, another person speaking in this language. Well, they may think they're elite, but an unbeliever is going to walk in and think, hey, this could be just some sort of a mystical religious uh, service, which you can have some of the uh, Gnostics, and again, Gnosticism is not formalized, but you do have some of the Gnostic cults that are doing things like that, where people work themselves up in some sort of an ecstatic trance, and they, they end up saying things that, that we don't understand. So an unbeliever is going to walk in and say either, A, how is this distinctively Christian, and, and B, what's going on? This is, this is just crazy. There's nothing going on here that makes any sense, and so the gospel is lost. And the Apostle Paul is saying this is not beneficial. Uh, an unbeliever is not going to hear this and see this and say, wow, this is something amazing going on. But he says if, if somebody truly speaks in a word of the culture, right, that, that society would understand or an unbeliever comes in and understands, they're going to be cut to the heart. So this secret of the heart, this being disclosed, is where now we pick up this language of mystery for the Apostle Paul. So just very briefly, when people hear the word mystery, they say it's something that's intangible and incomprehensive. It's, it's something that's only discerned in the spirit. Now, there's some truth in that in what scripture says. But in, in the Greek language, what mystery really means is it's more 
along the lines of an inside joke. So, you know, we can have little inside jokes in a community as friends, as families, where you just have to say a certain line and everyone kind of gets the joke. Well, if you're not part of the family or the group, the joke doesn't really make much sense to you because you don't understand the context of it. That's what mystery really means, that there's an inside story. There's, there's something that, that you know that, that has a deeper meaning to a word that might be common to everyone, but it means more to the community. So making this more concrete, there's a promise of the Messiah. The revelation of the mystery is now the arrival of the Messiah. So for instance, we can take the servant songs. We have a picture there of the Messiah, the picture of the suffering servant, but we don't really know what Christ looks like, right? So we have the inside story of a suffering servant who's going to come and the endowment of the Holy Spirit to secure redemption. But, but what does the Messiah really look like? Well, once that mystery comes to fruition, we see Christ, he enters history, we go back, we read the servant songs, we go, oh, that makes sense now. I, I understand what Isaiah was saying. So the mystery then is not some secret knowledge that you attain through some spiritual giftedness that's not revealed in the Word of God. It's taking that narrative, that story that was known, and understanding the ultimate fulfillment of what that means. So when Paul speaks of mystery, that's what he intends. So again, this is discerning in the Spirit. This is Christ. This is the promised one. We look at the Word of God like the Bereans, Christ himself taking the Word of God. And so what does it mean then that an individual is cut to the heart? Well, along the same lines. It's not that all of a sudden this individual walks into the church, hears a preaching of the gospel, and all of a sudden everyone in the church knows all the deep hidden secrets of this person's life. I mean, who wants to go through that experience and walk into a community of people you don't know, right? I mean, that sounds terrifying. But the reality is, what it means is that the individual who hears the gospel truly to, in the sense that it, it cuts to his heart, then now this individual understands what it truly means to be a sinner. It doesn't mean that you're a terrible person in the sense of how the world would say it, right? They say, oh, Hitler's a sinner, but I'm not like Hitler, therefore I'm not a sinner. But what this means is now an individual is going to say, well, it doesn't matter if I'm Hitler or not, I'm still a sinner. I still need a redeemer. And so this, this cutting to the heart, the secret of the heart, all of a sudden the individual sees who they really are, that they're an individual who needs Christ. So notice the reaction of this, that it's not he's going to speak in tongues, but he's going to take this cross-like posture of falling down before the Lord and worshiping the true God of heaven. And so when Paul speaks of these gifts, it's not about us trying to claim some sort of a spiritual elitism. That's what Corinth is doing. And you do see a, a pre-Gnostic, you know, basically you elevate the spirit, play down the flesh is what that means. In 1 Corinthians 15, with a minimizing of, of the resurrection and the bodily resurrection of Christ. And so what Paul wants us to understand is as a church is moving from apostles, prophets, to teachers, and then tongue speaking at the end, right? It's important to point that out to someone who says, well, this is the highest gift. You say, well... 
It's important to remember, not according to 1 Corinthians 12, it's actually at, at the bottom of the list. And Paul tells us to aspire to the higher thing. What's the higher thing? Well, love. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, in the context of this, love continues, these gifts will cease. Why will they cease? Because the intention of these gifts is to communicate the gospel we have in the canon. So as we have the complete canon of Scripture, we don't need these gifts. So we shouldn't think that God is depriving us of something significant or that God is holding us back in our spiritual walk. The reality is, as we have the Word of God, we have what God intends for us to know, to sojourn under the sun. And again, I'm not the, the, the theologian that said this. Many theologians have said it. I don't even know who to specifically give the credit to. But the Word of God is like the ocean. There's many layers. You can see the, the vastness of the ocean from the shore. But as you dive down into the ocean, going deeper and deeper and deeper, you see the many more um, profound layers that are there. And that is the Word of God. I mean, I, I talk to other preachers, and it's always funny when we get together and we talk. You look at your old sermons, and you're like, really? That's all I got out of that text? Like, there's so much more there. And, and you're amazed, because when you preach it the first time, you thought, wow, this is profound. This is great. But you learn more and more as you dig into the text. You make more connections of the beauty of what is in this word. And I, I, I say that in the hopes that we really want to dig into this word and don't see it as something that's inferior to what the Corinthian church has. Because we have the same gospel message. That's all that tongues is doing, bringing the gospel message to foreign people. And the intention is that the nations receive the same Christ, come to know the same mystery that was hidden in the Old Testament, fully revealed in the New, and that we discern it in the power of the Spirit, valuing those who have gone before us and how they have mined the riches of the Word of God. Again, we, we don't minimize other theologians. We, we certainly value them throughout church history. But what are they doing? They're mining the riches from the Word of God. So when we ask that question then, is it really just sort of a, a cultural issue? We don't speak in tongues. Is it just we're, we're super stoic and, and we don't really want to have an experience in the Spirit? Are we scared of speaking in tongues? And why, why does this go away? Well, this is where it's important. And to start with the story of this with Pentecost, when Peter explicitly says, these people that don't normally speak this language are all of a sudden speaking the gospel truth in a foreign language they never knew. 1 Corinthians 14, Romans 8, is not teaching an angelic language. This is not something that's intended to go on for personal development. The context of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is teaching that it is for the upbuilding of the body of Christ to truly know who Christ is. And if they come back to you and say, yes, but it says it's edifying for them. Well, guess what? Ministers will also tell you, as they spend all week wrestling with the Word of God, mining from the Word of God, there's something personally edifying about it. I can't bring it all into the pulpit. But the reality is, even if someone's bringing the, revelatory, uh, the revelation of God, I would assume and hope 
that there is something that is personal and beautiful about it that's upbuilding their faith, right? Ministers experience this, and we try to bring it to the congregation. But nevertheless, it's still the same gospel message that's coming out to the people of God. And so the hope that we have then, in terms of what Paul is laying out to the Corinthian church, is that we're not using our giftedness to promote our own significance or our own elitism. That we're trying to do what we can in the service of the body of Christ, living out the gospel for our Lord. This is why 1 Corinthians 13, so many people do part of 12 and jump right to 14 and forget the significance of 1 Corinthians 13 being sandwiched right in there. Living out the gospel. Living out the mundane. Right? I mean, living out the gospel, not, not very glorious, but it's the reality of what we're called to do. Living for the glory and sake of our Savior. I know I've used this quote uh, often, but it was something that certainly had an impression on me when Godfrey quotes Calvin. It's enough to live and die in the service of the Lord. You think about all of what Calvin has done, his significance in church history, the Reformation, and yet that's how Calvin consciously conducts himself. It's not look at all the commentaries I wrote. It's not look at all the sermons I've done. It's not look at all the suffering I've done for the sake of Christ. It's coming back to it's enough to live and die in the service of our King or our Lord. That's the attitude of what Paul wants us to have. And so, I, I, I hopefully I'm not beating up on charismatics, but it's, again, that reminder that when somebody's bringing this gift as a personal elitism to remind them of the intention of the about our elitism is about serving Christ, knowing his gospel, edifying the body of Christ and the gospel of Christ. Let us then have the wisdom to live out this gospel for the honor and glory of our Redeemer. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshipping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.